0: and uh, before we start I just want to say you know these mission uh, moments in the morning are to me are just incredible you know after a hard week at work and complaining about my life and how everything's not perfect uh, I come to church on Sunday morning and I always look forward to the mission moment because I leave here with a sense of humility and just knowing that you know things could be a whole lot worse and uh, especially when I think about over the years when I've complained about the church here, you know, we're just not doing it right. You know, and then I see, you know, people like this in other countries that are really sacrificing everything. And I have to ask the question, you know, am I part of the solution or part of the problem? But I really appreciate these mission moments. Uh, To me, they're everything. If we ever quit doing anything here in this church that we do as part of our worship service, I hope that's not one of them. So, anyhow, uh, let's go ahead and get into God's Word. Uh, Acts chapter 3, 11 through 26. Okay. Now as the layman who was healed had held onto Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's. Uh, Solomon. Greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, He responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and ask for murder to be granted to you. And kill the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith face, face which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. <laughs> Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance as did also your rulers. For those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and and that we may send Jesus Christ whom was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the Father, The Lord your God will be raised up for you, a prophet like me, from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things. Whatever he says to you, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and to his seed, all the families of the earth, Shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up His servant Jesus, sent Him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from your iniquities.
1: Well, that's a lot of verses that Rick has just read for us, and we're going to try to go through every one of them this morning. Okay? Um, just see, amen to what Rick was saying about the missions moment. Uh, just really has been impactful, especially in the last couple of weeks, to consider those brothers and sisters in Christ in Iraq and Iran. important that we be praying for them. If you're a note taker, you'll see that there are seven points to this message. Um, you know, usually you only have two or three or four, maybe, but in the last couple of uh, sermons, there have been more than that. Let me open with a word of prayer and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this time. Thank you for the time that we've enjoyed to this point this morning. Thank you for the Sunday school hour and then music ministry and the missions moment and the reading of your word, Father. Um, thank you for your people. Thank you for each one that is here. Father, calm our hearts now. Uh, Give us a little bit of peace here that we might uh, look into your word in a fresh way and uh, teach us things we otherwise would not know. Remind us of things that we've known for a long time. Speak to each one of us right where we're at, Lord, as only you can do. We give this time to you now and ask that you would bless. Keep me from saying things I should not say. May you be pleased with what is proclaimed in our response to it. In Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen. We will be turning to Isaiah 42 uh, at one point in this message. I want you to know that. Other than that, we won't be turning around, moving too much. Um, Have you ever been focused on the wrong thing? Have you ever been focused on the wrong thing? (laughs) I thought of an example of that. Have you ever been trying to get out of your car in a hurry? And you've got three things you're trying to grab, and you go to step out of your car, but the ground is icy, and you're not focused on the ground. <laughs> and your feet just come out from underneath you, you're focused on the wrong thing, right? Or you have you ever been driving down the icy road, and as you're driving down an icy road, you're looking at a bunch of cars and trucks in the ditch, and you're kind of focusing on that, and then you feel yourself slip a little bit yourself, and you realize, I better pay attention to what I'm doing, or I might... It might get real in a hurry. Things might get real in a hurry. Sometimes when I'm driving down the road, I'll roll down the window. If it's cold out or icy out or slippery out, I'll roll down the window just to remind myself of how cold it is out there. So I'll know if I go off the road, that's what I'm going to be in. I better stay focused on what I'm doing. And it helps me. It sounds odd, but it helps me. Have you ever been driving down the road and you notice a car wandering around like this? Because I drive truck, I notice it a lot. You're noticing everything. spend a lot of time on the road. And you can tell, I think that person's on their cell phone. And man, are people on their cell phones, they're focused on the wrong thing. And you can see accidents happening that way. Someone on their cell phone, traffic starts to stop, boom, happens that fast. We've all been focused on the wrong things. Peter's going to confront a group of people that maybe have their focus off a little bit. And he's going to confront them with some things that they can't keep at arm's length. You know, you see those cars on the side of the road in the ditch and you think, I, I don't want to be there. I want to keep that at arm's length. It's outside my windshield. I want to keep it that way. There's some folks that, people, that need confronting and um, they're trying to keep things at arm's length. They're not going to be able to do that. They're going to be confronted with truths about themselves and about their beliefs. And Peter makes the most of this opportunity to point people to Jesus, and that's what this message is about. Making the most of every opportunity in pointing people to Jesus. That's what this message is about. Uh, Peter's sermon that we're looking at, that that um, Rick just read for us, is a sermon that follows this miraculous healing. This guy that was a crippled since birth, was born that way, is over forty years old now, and he is healed. He leaping and jumping and praising God. It's a message that's addressed to men of Israel. And in every respect, in every aspect rather, of this message is used, every aspect of this message is used to point people to Jesus. They're looking at a healed man and they're looking at Peter and John. They're looking at this healed man and they're looking at Peter and John, but they're doing it as spectators. Hey, They're doing it as spectators. But Peter's going to let them know that they have business to do with God and they might get a little bit uncomfortable along the way. Hey? They might get a little bit uncomfortable along the way. But just like the man who was healed, there is new life. There is new life in Christ. There is new life to be had in Christ. So seven ways that he points people to Jesus. That's what we're looking at. Seven ways he points people to Jesus. The first way is he points people to Jesus from the power of God. Verses 11 and 12. We see the power of a changed life. Verse 11 and 12. While he was clinging, this is the man that has been healed. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. Um, there's a pillar up here. No, there's not. Josh, can you make that slide come up? That's a remaining pillar from the portico of Solomon. I thought it would be uh, interesting to show that. Um, this is this is this is where uh, these people are at. This is where. Uh, peter and john are at this is where this big group of people have come running hey in verse 12 but when peter saw this he replied to the people men of israel why are you amazed at this or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk peter's going to point them to jesus from the power of god as we as you looked as or as you listen as rick read those verses verses 11 through 26 you might have started to notice that this is not so much a Narrative about the healing of a crippled man, but it's more about the confirmation of the gospel. This story is not so much about the healing of a crippled man, but it is about the confirmation of the gospel. Verse 11, uh, is what a thing we have there, eh? Just moments ago, this man it was a very different man. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called porch of Solomon, and full of amazement. This, was, this is a very much different man than he was just moments before this. Look back at verses 2 and 3. And the man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go in to the temple, he began asking to receive alms. Peter says to him, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, walk. And that man gets up on his feet for the first time in his entire life and he's leaping, he's leaping. Instantly, instantly, no time of recuperation, he is leaping and praising God. I believe he placed his faith in Christ at that moment. When he puts his hand in Peter's hand, he is trusting that Jesus can not only heal him, but save him. I believe that to be the case based on chapter 3, verse 16. This formerly broken man was walking through the beautiful gate. What a picture of salvation. A formerly broken person walking through this beautiful gate. And he hangs on to or hangs by the side of Peter and John, the beggar who became their brother, the shamed who became a saint, the cripple who became complete in Christ. The things he used to be and the things he used to do became that. Those are the things I used to do. What a, what a thought, hey? When someone comes to faith in Christ, it is a powerful testimony. A changed life is a powerful testimony. Everything you were up to that point, all of that can be just become things I used to be and things I used to do. I have newness of life in Christ. That's where this man is at. He's not sitting on a mat any longer. He's not excluded from the temple. He's in there with these guys. Over 40 years old, now newness of life, leaping and praising God and drawing a crowd, drawing a crowd. You see the power of a changed life here. All the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. This paints a picture of an excited crowd, doesn't it? These people are excited. What in the world just happened? I've seen that guy for the last 25 years. It's that guy, and he's jumping up and down. What in the world is going on? Something that Something's happened that is undeniable, and it creates quite an interest. It's grabbed their attention. This power of a changed life, it impacts all who see it. Something has happened, and it's Jesus that's done it. You know, people often seek God in the midst of tragedy. In fact, we all do, don't we? You get sick. You start getting sick, where do you go? The bad news comes, where do you go? On 9-11, when the Twin Towers fell down, the whole country, the nation, was seeking the face of God. Democrats and Republicans and independents and, and from every political spectrum was on, on the steps of the Capitol building seeking the face of God in the midst of that tragedy. And there's an opportunity there to point people to Jesus. But when someone goes from being a, bro- a broken person to trusting Jesus, there's an opportunity to point people to Jesus there as well. And that's what we see here. This isn't a tragedy, this is something to rejoice about. In verse 12, Peter recognizes a few things, uh, and I'll read it again. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at us, as if by our own power or piety we made him walk, or our own holiness or godliness we made him walk? Peter recognizes that they have this overwhelming surprise and he says, don't be surprised. I see in that that Peter's a changed man himself. He has come to expect that God is going to show up and do something. He's come to this place where he's come to expect that God is going to show up and do something. Why are you surprised? God is alive. He's not a dead God. He's alive. Don't be surprised at this. And, he, and he, Peter recognizes something else. There's this misappropriation of power. You see this um, display of power that's unexplainable, but you're attributing it to John and I, and you ought not to do that. Don't attribute it to us. Let me point you to Jesus. Let me point you to Jesus. So he's pointing to Jesus. He's pointing people to Jesus from the power of God displayed He's also going to point them to Jesus from personal history. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom you you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release Him. Ouch. He's pointing them to Jesus from their own personal history. He's not looking for a quarrel, but looking to connect them to Jesus from their own history. It's a history that begins with God. You know, the first five books of the Bible begin with, begin with God. Actually, the Old Testament, all of the Bible, it begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he connects them to God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. He's pointing them to Jesus from their personal history with God. This is the people who understand that God is the one who has created man and not man who has created God. They understand that he is the one true God. He's pointing them to Jesus through their personal history with God. He, he connects them to their shared ancestry. This is a Jewish audience again. The gospel begins at Jerusalem. It's not going to stay there, but it begins there. He says in verse 12, Men of Israel. The Jewish audience. And here in verse 13, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is he saying when he says that? He's saying this is the one true God, the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, world-creating, all-providing God, the God who was there before they became a nation. The God of Abraham. They weren't even a nation yet. It was a promise. Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless those who bless you and I'm going to make you into a great nation. He's connecting them to this promise-keeping God. He's trying to point them to Christ through their connection with God, through His promises to them from Abraham and moving forward. This unchanging God. The same God who told Abraham those things. And we, learned it, we were reminded in Sunday school, or we learned in Sunday school, one or the other, that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to perform what he promised. Abraham was fully convinced of that. Jesus refers to this, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then he says, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. This phrase, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, tells you he's the God of the living. We ought to expect that God is going to show up. That God can show up. We ought not to expect that He can't. It sounds like something I said just a year ago. We ought to expect that God is going to show up. Maybe two years ago. He's pointing people to Jesus from their personal history. Their personal history. And their recent history. Their recent history, and it's not pretty. He's glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom... You delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. I said we'd be going to uh, Isaiah 42. Now is the time. This, This concept of Jesus as a servant, I want us to get a flavor of that from Scripture and not just have our own imaginations about it. Not that we would, but maybe we would. God has glorified his servant, Jesus. Isaiah 42, 1 through 5. Behold, my servant, whom I, whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. When he says here in Acts uh, three thirteen, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. This is the servant he's talking about. And, and Israel would understand this, hey? Israel would would, would re, be able to relate to this. And there's look, there's a lot of other passages that would talk about Jesus as a servant. But this is beautiful language, isn't it? About Jesus as a servant. But he, he, Jesus, this servant, was recently among them. This is from their recent history. And he says, you handed them over to be killed. He implicates the entire nation. He puts them all in the same boat. You handed them over to be killed. You disowned him. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. These are just the facts from their recent history, and Peter's going to present the facts to them. And just by way of application, when we're pointing to people to Jesus, and we're trying to point ourselves to Jesus, we can do it from our personal history, eh? God has given us life and breath and every good thing that we have. Have you disowned him? Have you have you said? I hear about Jesus. I've heard about him all through my life. I hear these different things, but that's not for me. Have you disowned him? Would you release a murderer and see him crucified? Now, I'm not saying any of you would do that, but it's something to consider because people do that. People say, "I don't want anything to do with that Jesus. Give me man. Give me this. Give me that." I got my own self interest. That's releasing a murderer and disowning Jesus, right? He's pointing people to Jesus. He's doing it from the power of God that has been displayed from and from their personal history in verse 13. And from personal responsibility in verses 14 through 17, he's pointing people to Jesus. He's making the most of this opportunity of this man who has been healed, pointing people to Jesus from personal responsibility. Uh, As you look at these verses, you can see Peter does not have for them a message of confusion, but there is this message of conviction. The Holy Spirit's going to bring conviction on them, and he doesn't hold back. He makes the most of this opportunity. Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But praise God, He doesn't leave us without hope. Conviction should take us to the cross, hey? To the person on the cross, to the Christ of the cross, the Christ that's on the cross. In verse 14, Peter points them to Jesus from the perspective of personal responsibility. But you disown the Holy and righteous one, and asked a murderer to be granted to you. People still do this today. I just mentioned that a minute ago. And asked a murderer to be granted to you. And in place of him, prefer themselves. That's what we do. That's what people do. In verse 15, and killed the prince of life. These are just the facts. They're hard to hear, but they're needed. You killed the prince of life. You put to death the prince of life the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. What a condition they find themselves in, hey? On the wrong side of righteousness. On the wrong side of righteousness. I thought I was living my life as I saw fit and I was on the right side of things. My perspective, my worldview must be right because it's the one I grew up with and it's the one I have and it's the one I've held all my life. I must be on the right side of righteousness. And these people are finding out they're not on the right side of righteousness. They're on the wrong side of righteousness. They're on the wrong side of righteousness. righteousness. What do you do when you thought you were on the right side of things but found out you're not? I want to say on this side of eternity is the best place to find that out because on the other side of eternity, it's too late. It's appointed upon man once to die and after that, the judgment. Verse 16. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. It is faith in Jesus. It is Jesus and faith in him that has given this healing. It's not a magical power. I thought of the seven sons of Sceva going around claiming Jesus' name. What happens to them? The demons come, beat them up, and say, Paul I know, and Jesus I know, but who are you guys? They got no power over them, demons. They're not in Christ. The name of Jesus isn't a magical potion you just fling it out there. It's faith in his name. That's why I say I believe this man who was healed from being crippled was also healed spiritually. He became a believer, he trusted the Lord. Verse 17. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. You didn't know what you were doing. It's similar to what Jesus says on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How true it must be when it comes to our understanding of spiritual things prior to faith in Christ, we do not know what we are doing. After faith in Christ, we only see as through a glass dimly. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I'm not the brightest man in this room. But you know what? None of us measure up to God. We just don't measure up. There's so many things we don't know. You acted in ignorance. You didn't even know what you were doing. But there is personal responsibility. But praise God, he deals with us on the basis of his mercy and his grace and his love. Hey, but God, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Praise God, he doesn't deal with us on the basis of our ignorance. But he deals with us on the basis of his mercy and his grace and his love for God. So loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a simple message. Three-year-old to 93-year-old can understand that message. That's a simple message. It's not complicated. complicated. It's also His mercy and grace I see in the fact that He brings conviction, an understanding of sin, to become aware of our condition, to become aware of the fact that I'm on the wrong side of righteousness is a grace of God's. It's His mercy and grace that enables me to see that I'm on the wrong side of righteousness. So Peter doesn't let them off the hook, but he's pointing them to Christ from their personal responsibility. He's also pointing them to Christ from their present reality. we we'll go back to verse 15 at the last part of that. God raised from the dead. Whom God raised from the dead? You killed the Prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact of which we are all witnesses from the present reality. God raised Him from the dead. This is at the very heart of the Gospel, isn't it? Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. hey! Jesus is risen. This is at the heart of the Gospel. This is a reality backed up by personal testimony. Jesus is a living Savior, Peter is saying, and I'm a witness of it. It's an empty tomb. He's a living Savior. Praise God for that. In verse 16, I won't read it again, but what I hear in there is Peter saying that Jesus is active and He's able to save. He's active and He's able He's not uninterested, inactive, and unable to save. He's active and he's able to save. On the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. Verse 17 again, you and your rulers acted in ignorance. You you do not know as much as you think you know and you're living in this present reality. You need Jesus. That's what he's saying to them. In verse 19, let's go down to verse 19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent. You need to repent to change your mind, to agree with God, to turn toward God. There is this offer of salvation. You made a mess of it, but God is calling you to Himself. Repent so that your sins may be wiped away. Not repent for your best life now, although I can't imagine a better life than life in Christ, regardless of circumstances. But that's not what he's saying. So that your sins may be wiped away. What an offer. Powerful conviction that he's bringing on them. You killed the author of life. You killed him. You disowned him. And you let a murderer go in his place. This powerful conviction apart from the person of Christ is no comfort at all. But he gives comfort. He says there's forgiveness in Christ. There's comfort in Christ. He challenges them to repent, to reverse their verdict about Jesus and about themselves. If you're going to do business with God, you must come through the person of Christ whom you disowned and crucified, the one you regarded as nothing in your mind, is your only point of access to God. That's what he's telling them. So he's pointing them to Jesus. He's using this event, this healing of this man, and this man coming in and praising God so vocally that it draws this crowd of thousands. He's using this to point people to Christ. From that power that was displayed, from their own personal history as a people, from their own personal responsibility, from the present reality that Jesus is alive, that he's risen. Verse 20. and That he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. That's how the NAS renders it. Whether this is sending Jesus at his second coming. In other words, if the nation would believe then as a nation, maybe God would send them. But that's an if, and we're not going to deal in ifs, right? Because that's not what he's talking about. I don't believe. Or the sending of Jesus to save them in a spiritual sense. And I think verse 21 would bear that out. Because the current reality is Jesus is in heaven until the one day when he's coming again. Verse 21. Whom heaven must receive, speaking of Jesus. Let me read 20 and 21 together. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive, that's where Jesus is now, until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So that's where Jesus is now. From the present reality, Jesus is in heaven today. You're either going to meet him as your Christ, your Savior, or you're going to meet him as your judge. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's pointing them to Jesus from the record of prophecy as well, verses 18 and 24. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled from the record of prophecy. I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm asking for a response. I don't do this very often, right? It doesn't happen very often, but I'm going to ask for a response. Do you have a favorite Old Testament prophecy regarding Jesus? Give it a minute. Do you have a favorite Old Testament prophecy regarding Jesus? But what a statement for them to grab hold of, and what a truth that anyone can grab hold of. He's pointing people to Jesus. He's making the most of every opportunity from the record of prophecy. Peter is not calling for blind faith, but convincing them through the testimony of Scripture, things that God announced beforehand. What a thought for them. God knew it in advance. Not only knew it, but he planned it. And and it's a blessing to us as well today. My favorite prophecy recorded before Christ was ever born is Psalm 22, verse 1. Hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? His words on the cross as he's starting to breathe his last. You get to verse 16, 17, and 18, a band of evil men have encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. Now, how's that possible? How's that possible? Jesus' death on the cross, written 800, 900 years before he was ever born. And then you look back down at the page, you know what you read next? They divide my garments amongst them and cast lots for my clothing. I got saved reading that. That's why it's my favorite Old Testament prophecy of Jesus. Okay, I asked someone, would you say it good and loud? Do you have one? Adriana, Isaiah 53, who has believed our message and to whom has the armor of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before us like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty that we should be attracted to him. But he was crushed for our iniquities. It goes on to say he was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that was a, that was upon him. I forget how it goes. I don't want to misquote. Beautiful. Isaiah fifty three. Someone else. Beautiful of God, Isaiah fifty-five one and two. Oh, come, everyone that thirsts, buy without money. And Peter, Peter says here, silver, gold, I do not have. What I have, I give. Someone else, maybe one more. Isaac hmm. Abraham sacrificing Isaac and God says I'll offer myself a living sacrifice. Yeah, I'll provide. I'll provide the ram. Yeah. Beautiful picture of God providing his son, hey. The sacrifice for all of us. Well, that's that's what he's doing for these people who are Jews who know their Old Testament very well, know it better than most of us. Maybe some of them know it better than all of us. He's saying all the prophets were pointing to Christ. He's pointing them to Jesus from prophecy. The record of prophecy discloses the plan of God in sending His Son long before Jesus ever came. In verse 24, he says something similar. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. Isaiah 7.14, right? The virgin shall be with child. Again, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. She'll give birth to a son and he shall be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Isaiah 9.6, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. A child is born, his humanity, a son is given, his deity. Wonderful words. Isaiah 42, we looked there just a little while ago. Isaiah 53, Adriana mentioned that. Micah 5 2 speaks of his place of birth, Bethlehem. From prophecy. He's pointing them to Jesus from prophecy. He's using this event to point people to Jesus. Convictions come. I'm sure the Holy Spirit's brought conviction on them through the preaching of the fact that they are responsible to God and they're not on the right side of righteousness. He also points them to Jesus from the promises of God. Verses 21 through 23. Thank you for Sunday school this morning, Ron. You talked about the promises of God. God bats 1,000. He keeps His promises whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. Which God spoke. When God speaks, He means what He says. When God speaks, He means what He says. He can keep His promises. In verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from Your brethren, to to him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. Moses got this from the Lord. Moses said, the Lord said this, the Lord God will. And he did. And he did. But they didn't. (laughs) Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. Did they do that? No. But God keeps his promises. Verse 23, And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now this isn't really a promise on the positive side, but this is just a fact. And I think here is, in there is God's concern, Peter's concern for every soul. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet. Every soul. There's a concern for every soul. Every soul. God's desire is that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. From the promises of God, Romans 15.8. One verse about this. Romans 15.8. He's pointing people to Christ from the promises of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. There's much more that could be said there if we spend some time there. We're not going to do that. And one last point, point number seven. We made it, almost. He's pointing people to Christ from the purpose of a nation. From the purpose of a nation. Verses 25 and 26 It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. He's pointing them to Jesus from the purpose of this nation. This is a message to a Jewish audience, to this nation, a nation that had a purpose. He connects them back through their position, in verse 25, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenants, which God made with your fathers. He connects them back through their position to their purpose, which God made with your forefathers, saying to Abraham and in, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's their purpose. He connects them through their position to their purpose to point them to Christ. That's what he's doing. The purpose of Israel as a nation, to be a blessing to all nations, Genesis 22.18, primarily through Christ coming through them, but in other ways as well, to be a witness to the nations, 2 Samuel 7.23, to make a name for himself, God set apart this nation. To be a conduit for the very word of God without the Jewish nation, we would not have the Bible that's in front of us. to be a light and dark world i just want to close now we're thinking about our purpose as people because you say well i'm not jewish what does that mean to me well what's our purpose to glorify god isn't it read the book of ecclesiastes the author of ecclesiastes which i know now is solomon i didn't know that at one time he tries everything to find purpose in life He tried everything he could find and he did it wholeheartedly, completely. He put himself fully into it. And at the end of it, every time he said, there's no meaning here, there's no meaning here, there's no meaning here. And he concludes, my paraphrase of what he says, a life lived without God in it is meaningless. The whole duty of man is to honor God, to glorify God. I started with Talking about a wrong focus. Our daughter Sarah uh, in uh, grade school uh, had an opportunity for a couple years to play basketball and she got brand new tennis shoes one year and she was so excited about her brand new shoes. I think it was for at least a couple games when she went running down the floor she was looking at her shoes. Well, it doesn't make a very good basketball player, does it? But it makes a really cute story and it's adorable for a grade school girl to do that. It just makes me love her all the more. Uh, did then, still does now. But imagine an NBA player doing that. Not quite the same picture, is it? It's ridiculous. Wrong focus. Wrong focus. I'm I'm saying that because, look, we're old enough to know we have the right focus. Our focus ought to be on God. We are put here for a purpose, just like the nation of Israel was. Well, not just like. In a similar way, we're put here for a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify God. And as we point people to Christ, as we point one another to Christ, we fulfill that purpose. The purpose of God in sending His Son was to be a blessing. Verse 26, For you first God raised up His servant and sent Him to bless you. It's not, it's not this ogre coming down saying, you wicked, vile people, I'm here to wipe you out. Jesus came to be the Savior. To be a Savior. Send him to bless you, turning every one of you from your wicked ways. I heard a guy preaching on this. I really appreciated what he had to say about this verse. He was saying that God sent his son to bless us, to turn us from our wicked ways. But we think our blessings come from participating. We, I'm putting all of mankind in that category, we, not any one particular person here. But we think our blessings come from the wicked things that we get to do sometimes, hey? The things we involve ourselves in, we think there's going to be some blessing in that. Before coming to faith in Christ, we can go back and say, yep, I can remember when I used to think that would be something good for me. But there's no blessing there. And then after we come to faith in Christ, look, maybe it's not to the extreme it used to be. Maybe it's just gossip, you know, or something like that. We think there's going to be some blessing there. There's no blessing there. There's no blessing there. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways or from your iniquities. That's the blessing, to be turned from my iniquities. I was going this way and now I'm going toward God. That's the blessing, to turn every one of you from your wicked ways. we got to close here. I just wanted to drive home the point with regard to this section of Scripture. I wanted to get through all these verses and make the point that I see Peter pointing people to Jesus in these seven ways. Through the power of God that is obvious to everyone. From their own personal history, from their personal responsibility, from their recent reality, it's never too late to turn toward God. It's never too late to put our iniquities behind us and move toward God from the record of prophecy, which ought to convince us that, you know what? There's reality here. There's truth here. From the promises of God, and God baths a thousand, and from the purpose of a nation, and from our individual purposes as well. Let's close. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for each one here and their attentiveness. Father, I, I don't know what you'll do with this message, but I pray you'd bless it to our hearts this week. And as you give us opportunity, help us to point people Jesus, may they see the power of a changed life. And when they notice that, help us to open our mouth to proclaim Him. In Jesus' name, amen.